it's your Rule of Law Rules podcast host, Angela Daly, with the next episode of our Legal Technology series. Welcome back to our regular subscribers and a warm welcome to anyone listening for the first time. You've tuned in to the Rule of Law Rules podcast from the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. In this podcast, we talk to international experts about the rule of law in the age of digitalization and gain insights into recent developments in different parts of the world. After finding out about legal tech in the Middle East, Europe, Africa and South America, we are now travelling to Asia with our guest Hannah Lim. Hannah is based in Singapore, where she is head of Rule of Law and Emerging Markets in LexisNexis and works with governments to identify areas where LexisNexis can support the rule of law using technology. She was formerly a corporate lawyer for Singaporean law firms in Myanmar. She is called to the New York State and Singapore bars and is also an accredited mediator. Hi and welcome, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Angela. Thank you for having me. So we'd like to start and end our episodes with some quickfire questions to introduce you and your views on legal technology. I will start a sentence and you can finish it with the first thing that comes to mind. So legal technology is my favourite topic because? Mm, because technology represents all things that are possible and can be possible in the future. And the law um, basically regulates human relationships. And I think that's probably the most important thing in our society. The first time I realised the importance of legal technology was... Trying to do legal research in Myanmar in the early 2010s um, when everything was in print and there were not a lot of print copies in circulation. So it became very clear legal technology was important. And legal technology is not a new development for Southeast Asia because... Well, at least in Singapore, um, the courts and since the 1990s have already tried to adopt a lot of legal technology under the late Chief Justice uh, Yong Pang Hao. Okay, thanks. So looking forward to hearing more about all of this. Let's move to our longer questions. So Hannah, can you tell us about how you started to work on legal technology or in the legal technology field? Mm, well, um, I mean, I guess based on my, my short uh, answers... Um, it was really when I joined LexisNexis, and prior to that, I was a, a lawyer in Myanmar for seven years, from 2010 to 2017. So that was a period of time when there was actually quite limited access to technology. I still remember when we were looking at trying just to get um, enough internet connection to our various devices in, in a hotel room. This was in, in 2010. Um, I mean, of course, it, it improved a lot after that. Um, but in terms of legal technology, it was really only when I joined LexisNexis in late 2017 um, and started working with a couple of the product teams on building some of the new products that are now on the market. Interesting. Okay, so can you tell us a bit more about your current role then at LexisNexis and what you do with regards to law tech and rule of law issues? Yeah, thanks, Angela. Um, I, I really love talking about this topic. So the corporate mission for LexisNexis is advancing the rule of law. And I mean, of course, that means different things to different people because the rule of law is such an unsettled concept. There's no universally agreed definition. 
Um, for us here at LexisNexis Southeast Asia, the approach that we've taken really is to see how we can support government, especially the courts and attorney general's office, government institutions relating to the law. Um, how can we support them in being more efficient with their processes? And of course, technology is one of the key enablers. And for us as an organization, I mean, for those of you who are familiar with um, LexisNexis, we do legal databases. And a lot of those databases are, of course, powered by technology, um, be it AI or search functionality. So we have certain core skills, be it around um, content management, technology development, process improvement. And we figured that, you know, maybe we can sort of take some of these skill sets and see how we can apply that to some of the needs that we see um, in the region. And so, so that's been quite exciting. So, so an example um, would be prior to February this year, we were actually working with the Myanmar Supreme Court on getting their commercial judgments published online. And the drive for this was really, you know, the courts wanted to improve their ease of doing business rankings. And one of the requirements was that your commercial judgments were transparent and, you know, readily available and quickly available online. So together with uh, the Danish Institute of Human Rights and the International Commission of Jurists, we were engaged to go in and consult with the courts to see how can we help them with these processes, the publishing processes, essentially, um, to get their court judgments online. And, and that was a project that spanned um, two years. And um, I mean, it, it was it was very fulfilling. I've spoken a bit about some of the work you do in terms of using technology and facilitating the use of technology, particularly by the state. In your region in Southeast Asia, is the idea of legal tech or law tech particularly well known? I'm thinking maybe more of AI-driven uh, solutions, but potentially also digitalization more generally. So are people calling this something along the lines of law tech or legal tech, or is this something that's not that well known still, either among judges or uh, civil servants or normal people? Do normal people even know anything about this? Yeah, I mean, I think legal tech as a term is definitely something that is quite popular, um, regardless of the, the countries in, in Southeast Asia that you go to. I mean, you talk to, to lawyers, and you talk to technologists, um, people are keen. And, and Southeast Asia is quite a well-connected country in terms of um, internet connection. So, I mean, of course, not every you know, area has um, internet. But by and large, it's quite digital in some aspects. But that's a really sort of, I guess, broad definition, right? You know, when you use technology and, you know, how it interacts with uh, the practice of law, um, that's a very high-level understanding of, of legal technology that I think it's easy for everyone to sort of adopt and, and understand. But, but going beyond that and into the specifics, when it comes to, I guess, you know, the expectations and the requirements that people need when it comes to, you know, legal tech solutions in this region, uh, I guess that really starts to, to depend on people's expectations of both the legal system and technology. And that is also very much dependent on their experiences with both. So I suppose in, in this region, uh, a lot of people are very familiar with online platforms, you know, your social media platforms, online shopping. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very normal thing here. Um, so I can't imagine that people would become very familiar with that kind of technology and kind of would like to see similar types of solutions when it comes to engaging with 
um, government agencies and, and, their, and their justice needs. But when it comes to you know, the legal system, I guess that's when we look at a lot of deviation because within this region, um, you know, it's, a, it's a complex region. We've got 10 different countries, five different legal systems, if, if, I, if I'm not wrong. Um, so I guess that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult to sort of say like, oh, is there a unified understanding of legal technology uh, in the region? Yeah, definitely. So in fact, that kind of does lead to my next question about what is happening then in different legal sectors in your region uh, with regards to their embrace or not of technology? Do you think that digital technologies and AI are being embraced by many of the systems or some of the systems? Or do you think they are going to be disruptive of conventional roles for judges, for instance, or even the state? Can you tell us a bit more about how that looks in Southeast Asia? I think it's quite different from from country to country. I mean, okay, first you've got your general technological trends that uh, sort of apply across the board. Like, you know, generally internet is pretty okay in the region. Some countries have better internet um, than others. And then some regions within countries have some, sometimes they don't even have internet at all. But generally as technology adoption has increased, especially over the pandemic, technology adoption has accelerated. And that includes within um, the legal sector as well. So, for example, we've seen um, most of the courts moving to online hearings. For me particularly, I was quite inspired by what I had seen um, the courts in the Philippines as well as in um, Myanmar as well, because traditionally these courts were, were I guess, more traditional, uh, more paper-based, but they really, really rose up to the challenge um, of the pandemic and they embraced technology. And having worked with some of the uh, stakeholders within um, some of the courts in, in, in the region, sometimes you do see a little bit of resistance when it comes to, to technology, especially if you know, people feel that the processes, the legal processes are very important. And they are very important. Um, due process is something and, and procedural justice is something not to be taken lightly, but sometimes that gets confused with, you know, we cannot change the process um, at all. But with the, with the pandemic, we saw people becoming more and more open and definitely um, embracing technology. But, you know, we're talking about sort of general uh, productivity platforms and technology that's, that's used across the board, not so specific to, you know, to the law per se. So when we're talking about specifically new tools driven by technology for, for the legal segment, I mean, for me personally, of course, I'm, I'm most familiar with what LexisNexis has been, has been doing and, and I've been involved in some of in the development of some of these products. In, in, in Malaysia, for example, there was quite uh, an exciting analytic solution that was launched. Um, and I, I, I do think that this is something that could change the landscape of legal practice. And I, mean, I shouldn't say should, I think it, if, I think it will. It is a little uh, ahead of its time, perhaps. It's the first of its kind. It's an analytic solution. Um, I, I mean, I won't go too, too deep into detail, but it's, it's something that I think might bring in a new way for lawyers to practice. And so we're quite excited to see what kind of impact it would have in, in the market. Um, and of course, there are a lot of other solutions out there that we've seen, you know, a lot of legal marketplace, online marketplace solutions, contract management uh, solutions as well. Can you tell us a bit about what the regulatory environment is for legal tech in the region? Are there regulatory frameworks that legal tech has to interact with? Is it something sort of unregulated at the moment or does it depend very much on the specific jurisdiction? 
Well, I guess everything does at some level depend on the specific jurisdiction that we're talking about, and, and we're talking about 10 different jurisdictions. Um, but across the board, I guess there are two types of um, regulations which you know, I, I don't expect to be specific to the region, um, but the first type would really about, be about preventing harm, so harm prevention, and then the second type is really about the promotion of uh, the legal tech ecosystem um, as, an, as an industry. So for the first type of regulation that, you know, I guess we can talk about um, on, on harm prevention, um, the most common ones are the types that you would also see elsewhere around data protection, you know, technology related laws, data security um, that any legal tech provider would need to adhere to. Um, and then the other type would be the laws around the legal profession, which um, is also not something that's unique uh, to the region. Um, and of course, to the extent that these solutions are seen to be um, providing legal services, um, they would fall under that sort of uh, purview of the legal profession regulations. And of course, again, this differs uh, from country to country. Legal profession acts in some countries are quite strict, and some of them may have been written um, from a you know a few decades ago, and may have could potentially have a dampening effect on on how these technological solutions develop, um, not just in terms of you know what the solution can do, but also in terms of how the organisations developing the solutions are structured. So I mean, I've heard some conversations around if the Legal Profession Act doesn't allow law firms to have partners that are non-lawyers, then it might be a bit difficult to get a technologist on board who is able to sort of contribute to sort of, you know, a new online law firm or new legal solution type system. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying, and I definitely do not agree that, you know, the Legal Profession Act should therefore go and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a hindrance. It, it's there to protect people. We, we can't forget about that. Um, but, but we do have to be mindful about how these regulatory regimes impact the development of solutions. Um, and when we're thinking about that, so, you know, how, how do we make sure that these solutions can still flourish and there's enough innovation in the industry? This kind of ties in with, um, you know, what are some of the policies around promoting uh, legal technology as, as an industry? And th there's not necessarily, I guess, legal tech-specific um, regimes. I know in Singapore, definitely, there's a, there's a lot of um, attention on this. So the Singapore Academy of Law has its uh, Future Law Innovation Program. Um, it's called FLIP. And, you know, they do a lot of uh, support for startups in the legal tech uh, environment. So I think that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but in other countries as well, when we're looking at just general sort of like encouragement of the technology industry and AI sector, I know Indonesia has launched um, an AI strategy, a national AI strategy. So I think that's something that, um, you know, legal technology could, could fall well into to get some support from from government. And then, of course, you've also got, you know, incubators that may be supported by government or um, private sector that would hopefully also encourage um, the development of legal tech, while at the same time, making sure that it is safe. You know, all that to say that definitely, when it comes to technology, people like to, you know, move fast, break things, fail fast, learn fast. But, but we do have to be careful because, you know, the law, it's not, it's not a product that, you know, people may choose to not purchase. It's, we're, we're talking about our social fabric that's at stake. So we need to make sure that if we make any um, experiments, that it's done so in a safe way.
Yeah, definitely. And I think it's um, really important that kind of innovation is combined with uh, trying to mitigate risks and ensure, particularly for something like law, that it's done inappropriately um, as well. Kind of bringing me a little bit to my next question, which is thinking about access to justice issues. So do you see legal tech in your region as facilitating more access to justice or addressing some access to justice issues? Or has it largely kind of been used by big law firms to just kind of improve their own internal processes? Uh, so what do you think and what's going on? Well, definitely it's it's going to be both, right? Um, and I mean, I, I think technology is definitely going to be a net positive. Um, and I mean, for me personally, I definitely think technology should be applied, you know, first to the courts to help bring more justice to more people. I think having online courts uh, was probably a very good move. And this is something that could extend beyond the pandemic to allow people who may not want to travel um, for days, perhaps, to go to the nearest court. If, if they're, for example, staying in a rural area, they may have just always considered the courts to be inaccessible to them. Maybe now they would have more access to um, the state's legal systems, and, and that's always going to be a good thing. Um, I guess the concern here is really an imbalance in the development and in the distribution of the benefits. So if access to justice improves for some people, but not for everyone, so for example, for people who may not have um, internet, then this creates inequality before the law, and that's widening inequality. And I think that's something that we need to think about. It needs to be, it needs to be addressed Definitely, you know, when, when you talked about whether or not this is just going to be used by, you know, big law firms to sort of like improve their systems and improve themselves. I mean, yes, that's definitely going to happen. Um, but I guess then the question is, how do we then look at what's happening and encourage proper redistribution of those benefits beyond the um, immediate stakeholders who are currently benefiting from that? Do you have any particular examples or good examples uh, from your region about legal tech trying to address access to justice issues? Any particular initiatives that would be really good to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of things that I thought were really interesting is, you know, there's been a lot of legal marketplaces that have been um, popping up. I know in Indonesia, there's a uh, legal tech startup called Justica that really tries to connect people, um, you know, SMEs, family, people who need family law advice to law firms. And I think the crux of this is really getting legal information out there. You know, in the past, people may have felt, um, I'm not sure how to go about resolving this issue. I don't know how to go about looking for a lawyer. And now um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier, um, especially with, with the internet. So, I mean, legal marketplaces is one of them, but I think another interesting thing to look at is enabling civil society organizations that are also in, in the legal space. And they don't necessarily have to be legal tech organizations per se with a technology solution, but they could be leveraging on technology to help close that justice gap. So, um, for example, we've worked with a um, NGO in the Maldives, a family legal clinic, and I think they're the only legal clinic in the Maldives and, and, and we worked with them 
to you know get get their laws um, relating to women, children, and and family law um, sort of uh, translated into a plain language that's easy for the ordinary person to read. Um, and then we're working with them on like how can we disseminate this um, because you know it, it also ties in with the geography of, of the country because Maldives is is comprised of a lot of different atolls, small little islands, and not everyone will have a lawyer, but there will be people there, and mm. you know it may not be so easy for people to access um, legal advice, but if they were be, if they were able to access the law themselves directly and understand it because it's in plain language, you know that helps. Um, we've also worked with uh, Singapore Law Society Pro Bono Services, who generate their own legal content for laypersons. So anybody who wants to understand what their rights are, um, you know, you could be an ordinary person, you might have uh, employment law issues, you might be an artist, and you might have some sort of licensing questions around your art. Um, so the Singapore Law Society Pro Bono Services addresses that market and so you know we've been talking with them also around like how can you manage your content uh, more efficiently you know what sort of technology systems um, might, might be might be useful and it doesn't have to be super fancy right it's just you know what, what sort of systems can just sort of s- support you and your work to just make you more efficient to make it um, more far-reaching more impactful to make you faster and so you know when we're thinking about how technology can address uh, the justice gap I don't really think it's necessarily about the big, innovative, like groundbreaking changes. It can be just simple process improvement, productivity improvements that it doesn't have to be AI driven, basically. So in many regions, legal tech and particularly legal tech startups are funded by private equity. Is this also the case in your region? And if so, do you think this is an obstacle or does it actually facilitate legal tech resolving access to justice issues? I'm not too sure what the pattern is in, in this region. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if it's the same. When I, when I do talk to some of my legal startup friends, um, you know, they, they do tell me the same thing about you know, getting funding, um, their seed rounds and stuff like that. So I expect it to be quite similar. I mean, I do also see solutions that are being funded by law firms. So Justica is actually a, a law firm-driven solution. Whether or not it's going to be an obstacle to resolving access to justice issues, I, I, don't, I don't really think so. The innovation has to start from somewhere. And again, this goes back to my previous point about redistribution of the benefits and how those benefits are distributed is a separate question from the development um, of the solution. So, I mean, it's an important question and we definitely need to think about it and perhaps include those perspectives into the design of the solution. But I don't think in and of itself... Um, it should be a, a dampener on the innovation um, that could could potentially happen. If this means that we need to encourage more impact investing um, or include government and civil society stakeholders um, to have more engagement, especially with you know civil society organizations, legal aid workers. I mean, these people are on the front line of access to justice. You know, they're, they're the ones on the ground. They they really know what the needs are. Um, I think partnering with these teams as the innovation is going on would be a very useful approach to making sure that those benefits are properly redistributed. Do you think legal tech is disrupting and impacting on the traditional role of the judiciary and the legal professions in Southeast Asia? Is it significantly altering ethical obligations for the bar and bench? Definitely, when it comes to ethical obligations, that's something that we're always going to have to be looking at. Um, whether or not the disruption is, 
big or small, um, you know, society keeps changing, expectations keep changing, social values keep changing, and we are always going to have to keep a finger on the pulse as to whether or not our current processes remain ethical and effective. To, to the first question on, you know, in what way does legal tech disruption impact the traditional roles of judiciary and, and the legal profession? I mean, I, I, there, there are a couple of angles to this question. So on one hand, technology can sort of change how the judiciary is sort of operating. And, you know, we can have asynchronized hearings, for example. We can have more online hearings and alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. Um, this doesn't necessarily alter the role of the judiciary per se. It, it just changes how it's being done. And, you know, even at this level, of course, yes, there are ethical considerations because, you know, technology really is about, it's, it's a process question, right? Like, you know, are you appearing before a court or are you appearing in front of a screen? And process does have an impact on justice. And, you know, there are rules around process uh, procedures and, and, and this procedural justice. That's important. But if we're looking at a different level as well, when we're talking about the disruption of the role, then I think we're actually asking a deeper question of what is the role of the state in regulating human relations and to what extent is technology disrupting that? Because the judiciary is an arm of the state. It's one of the three, three branches um, of government. And I think this is where we, we do need to be careful because um, it's not something that we, we, we really think about a lot. And I, I have come across people who say like, oh, let's just completely keep this out of the courts because courts are slow and they have a whole host of issues. But when we, when, when, when we, when we look at this question, then you, you know, we really need to think about, okay, if not the courts, then whom? And if it is going to be technology that's replacing the judiciary, then your questions around transparency and accountability um, when it comes to you know, regulating what are essentially human relationships um, really come into play. And of course, I'm talking in extremes here, right? Like, I don't think we expect um, the judiciary or, or the state uh, to go anywhere. But um, I do think that when we ask this question, this is essentially what we're talking about. And I think we need to, to call it out for what it is and really be mindful as to the impact um, that we are having on how, how we engage with each other um, as people within a society and how we engage with our political institutions that we've put in place democratically, one would hope, to sort of express and reflect our values. Very important issues there. Thanks very much, Hannah. It's been really great to speak with you. Now to finish, I've got three more quick questions. Like before, I'll start the sentence and you can finish it. So technology alone does not lead to more or better access to justice because? Well, because the law is essentially a human institution and it's really about the humans um, behind it and the humans using that technology. Legal tech is still risky because? Well, I think I can answer the same uh, with uh, how I answered the first question because humans are still involved and humans are behind the technology and it depends on the humans using the technology. And finally, the rule of law rules because? Because it is essentially the infrastructure, the social and political infrastructure that is necessary for healthy, functioning societies. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us today, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So you've been 
listening to an episode of the Legal Tech series of the Rule of Law Rules podcast with me, Angela Daly, and our guest, Hannah Lim. In the show notes, you can find out more about Hannah, links to her activities, and more information about the Conrad Adenauer Foundation and its Rule of Law programme, which this podcast is part of. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel, where we will release new Rule of Law Rules episodes at the end of every month. If you liked this episode, then please give us a good rating and tell your data law geek friends about us too. Bye bye.